Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to my friend Derek Snook. Derek is an entrepreneur, an author and also someone who thinks very deeply about subjects around success and happiness. In fact, he's written a book called The Definition of Success and it talks about his experiences living in a homelessness hostel uh, in America and some of the various lessons that he's learned through doing that. So um, this is a really wide-ranging conversation. We talk about Derek's relationship with faith. We talk about his experiences living among the homeless and also uh, helping on a refugee camp in Greece quite recently and a whole bunch of other stuff, housing, uh, Instagram profiles, all kinds of stuff comes up uh, through this conversation. So it's a really fun one. Sat in the garden in my house in Brighton and let's get straight into it. So here's my conversation with Derek Snook. So I'm sat in my garden and you're sat just inside the door in the house in the shade um, being someone of ginger persuasion. Yeah, it's a strategic move. My life is in danger every second that I'm sitting out in the sun, so I want to live a long ginger life. This is the way to do it. Uh, and we're hanging out at my house because you've been staying here for a few days on a bit of a trip, which we'll, uh, we'll come to later. Um, so let's get straight into your story and how. let's start with how we met. So we met on Journeys for Change. Uh, was it 2012? Was that 2012? 2012. Yeah. Um, so we were on uh, a tour of social enterprises in Delhi and Rajasthan and looking at different models of running businesses and different ways to create social value. And uh, we were kind of roomies and hit it off. And here we are. And you've, uh, we've met up in uh, three or four different continents now in like different um, guises and different places. So um, let's start with how did you come across Journeys for Change and why was why was Journeys for Change and kind of touring around social enterprises in India? Why was that an interesting thing for you at that time? So I'm not sure how I feel on Journeys for Change other than uh, that Pooja, a.k.a. Pooh Bear and Richard <laughs> are amazing and they do a fantastic job. And I think uh, what was fantastic about that trip was just the innovation that we saw in the social enterprises in India. And, you know, I think a lot of what we'll talk about on this podcast is how they kind of flip things on their head. So I can specifically remember uh, Jaipur Foot, which we were talking about the other day, and how they were equipping people with prosthetic limbs that cost about $30 to make that were developed by MIT and Stanford. They last for five to 10 years. We saw people jump out of trees, run down the street in them, and they would never be allowed to be produced in the United States because one out of 10,000 people, the PVC pipe probably breaks, they fall and hurt their arm. We live in a very litigious society where uh, that person would then sue for tens of millions of dollars or whatever. Yeah. And so our prosthetic limbs are made out of titanium. Um, but in India, there's not the same restrictions. And so we saw some really incredible things i my recollection of the figures on that was that the ones they make are 30 dollars, and in the states they're often thirty thousand dollars do you remember those figures i've googled prosthetic limbs before and i think that the cheapest you can get one for is five grand but i don't think it's unreasonable for them to be far more yeah yeah but they're made out of titanium so you can also like I don't know, make an iPhone with it or something. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, so there was Jaipur foot. There was, um, there was also Jaipur rugs on that same little part of the trip as well, which is just a, an amazing, like the guy that ran Jaipur rugs. So he's running this amazing, huge weaving business, weaving these amazing, luxurious carpets that sell for hundreds and thousands of, of, of dollars kind of thing but doing it all the right way with treating his workers fairly and having them involved in decision-making processes and kind of all this stuff. Um, and then and there's a whole bunch of other sack of cabs in Delhi. Do you remember that one? Right. That um, was empowering women who had been in abusive relationships. So helping women yeah. in, from to get out of abusive relationships and to give them the job of, of being cab drivers, which in India is like pretty... Mm-hmm. It's pretty daring and pretty 
pretty forward thinking and it was yeah just an amazing inspiring group of people um, so you were running a social enterprise before that that was that was part of the um the sort of springboard to you being on jones for change right so right. so let's go back and talk about that so you uh founded an organization that uh really came out of your experiences of of living in a homelessness uh center right. um, so let's that's kind of like a an odd part to it's a surprising part to anyone's story right so um what made you decide to voluntarily live among homeless people so three reasons uh the first is that i just graduated from college and i was on a search for purpose and meaning a lot like the journeys for change trip while everybody was there and i had read uh where thoreau says to paraphrase him that most men live lives of quiet desperation but if you pursue the life you've dreamed of you'll find success in the most common of hours so one reason i decided to live homeless for a year was because of just a search for purpose and meaning in my life especially as it related to vocation another was i'd spent four months working at a school for orphans in kenya on the shores of lake victoria and there i felt kind of a disconnect between people who want to help and the people that they're trying to help and i realized that I didn't have to go to Africa to find that disconnect that existed where I was from, just seven miles from where I grew up in the suburbs with people who were uh, low-income employees who were homeless and you're homeless. And then the final reason was really uh, because my father's a minister. So when I was growing up and we talked about loving our neighbors as ourselves, it felt like it only extended to people who looked like us, thought like us, behaved like us, and probably voted like us. And I became so disenchanted with that that before I just kind of tossed it out the window, I thought I would try to live in the smallest way that Jesus actually says to live and see what comes out of that. So those three reasons added up to me deciding to do that. And maybe just talk a bit, a bit about what that was like. So you arrive on the first day. What does your bed look like? What, is the, what does the setup look like? Yeah, so it's, it's a dorm room with 26 beds, uh, a lot of bunk beds. Every... Uh, bed has a locker. Um, you have to leave at 7 a.m. You can't come back until 4.30 within like half an hour. Um, and then where I was, it was a halfway house for the homeless. So everybody there is homeless, but it was also $80 a week. And that covered your rent, uh, a couple meals a day, your utilities, pretty much all that. Um, but the people that I met there and the ex- experiences that I had fundamentally shaped my life and changed it. So... Wow, um, I, th- I feel like you need to say more about that last bit. That's, that's like a big uh, sort of truth bomb well, to. So I mean, the sentence with. yeah, I mean, so we, uh, so the first day that I was there, I met a guy named Walter. Uh, we were sitting on the back porch, and this kind of goes with the whole, uh, I guess, organized religion shtick that we've got a little bit. But um, he told me that he had a demon living inside of him. And I thought that was a pretty alarming thing. And when I decided to move in, I told myself I would only do it for a day or two. And as long as nobody killed me in my sleep, I could move out if I didn't like it. Right. So when Walter said he had a demon living inside of him, um, I thought he might just kill me then and there. But as I got to know Walter, I understood why he uh, had a demon living inside of him. He was actually married. He... uh, his wife was also pregnant and at the same time that his wife gave birth to a stillborn he found out the child wasn't his Um, and he was actually really involved in a church at the time and so he found out somebody else in the church was his wife's uh, partner that she'd had an affair with and he just bailed out on the whole thing Um, as we were sitting on the back porch though I asked him I was like Walter you know what is it that people who are living in situations like the Star Gospel Mission really need And in my mind, I had a laundry list of things I thought he would say, you know, a good job, a good education, a nice home. And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, Derek, we need the same thing that everybody needs. We need hope. And then he put out a cigarette and got up and went inside. And that was the kind of thing that happened to me on a regular basis there, because I suddenly had to question all of my values and motivations. If hope is what we really need to endure any circumstance then why had I been spending my entire life chasing things like a good education, a good job, and a good home? And so it it confronted me with the mirror of my own life about what's most important. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And you've also told me a story before 
I think it's in your book about is the, what's the same guy who goes out and buys the barbecue thing the grill thing that's Gerald that's Gerald I've changed all their names too for their privacy okay. so sometimes it Which gets mixed enough, up yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so tell us that story because that's a I think that's a fascinating thing yeah so Gerald um, that was probably the most powerful moment for me so uh, Gerald was a guy that I lived with he had one front tooth and he would wear uh, what we call wife beater t-shirt tank tops a lot. <laughs> that's just okay. that's probably not the best that's, word for I think it. That's an Americanism. To be yeah, fair. that's an Americanism. Um, and one day he asked me if I would take him to go buy a grill, a barbecue grill for okay. British for the, folks out yeah. there uh, at Walmart. And so we bought the grill, and on the way back, the barbecue grill. And on the way back, he confessed to me that he didn't have the money to pay his rent. And in my mind, I judged him. I thought everybody knows that having a place to live is more important than a barbecue grill. And when we got back to the mission, we were sitting on the front porch and I asked him, I said, Gerald, why did you do that? And he said that he just wanted something that people could rally around. Uh, He felt like that we needed to be encouraged and having a barbecue grill was something that guys could do and enjoy each other. It was all men at the mission. But the more he was talking, the more I realized all the things that he wasn't saying. So in the past year, Gerald had become homeless. He had fallen off of his bike. He was diabetic. And then most importantly, uh, his father had passed away. And Gerald mentioned once that he and his father, more than anything, loved to grill out together. Wow. So that Sunday and then the following weekend, because he would grill out for football games, um, Gerald grilled out and he cooked not just for us at the mission, but he cooked for everybody in the neighborhood, which was a really poor, um, low-income area. And when he had fed everybody at the mission, he took the extras around um, against our cook's warning, who said that, you know, if you feed them, they might come back, which is like <laughs> something people hear a lot. Yeah. Um, and what Gerald did wasn't practical or responsible, but it was exactly what we're supposed to do when it comes to building community, and that is uh, to feed people and invite people to things who can never repay you. And that's what Gerald did. Um, and I think that that changed my life in a couple ways. We were... We were walking the next morning to work, um, and that can be a good segue to IES. We were walking to work day labor together. It was still dark outside, and there was kind of an overpass that was coming up, and Gerald put his hand out to stop me, and when he did, I was scared because both of us knew that just a 15-year-old boy had been stabbed to death, like in the same exact spot underneath this overpass. Um, And after a few minutes, he said, I think it's okay, I just thought I heard something. And when he said that... It's something something kind of snapped with me and and I heard a voice that was just telling me a couple things. One was that in life it's more important to understand why somebody thinks the way they think, why they behave the way they behave than it is for them to think or behave in ways that I think are right. And I think that's a really important lesson especially for my American brothers and sisters to to understand. Another was that um that this voice didn't really care what I thought about these people, that it cared about them because they're people and they have inherent value. And then the third thing um, was that Gerald taught me an important lesson that not only was he willing to give up his home in order to have community, but I suddenly realized that I was also willing to give up mine and that having Mm. community in my life was more important to me than having a home or material things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was a life changer as well. And then you just mentioned their day labor and IES. So part of your experience and learning of living in, in the homelessness hostel led to you then starting... Hostel. <laughs> oh, it's hostel's the UK word. What do you call it? Mission? Yeah, like a mission. Yeah, okay. yeah. hostel's like, you know, when you're traveling around Europe and you... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we'd... Yeah. So in a lot of the homeless sec- sector, you'd often hear the word service being used. It's like they stay okay. in a service, but hostel is the probably the word that uh, would be like the, the English mainstream word, I guess. Um, so while you were staying there, uh-huh. you had the inspiration for IES, which then became your first business. And um, maybe just talk a bit about the story of how that came about and, and like what was the what was the sort of... Um, what was the thinking behind behind the organization? Yeah, so I think that the miracle was just that I was close enough to see these guys' problems and their pain um, because of the community that we were in. So I was surprised to learn that 
many of them were working like 40 hours mm, a week. Right. Um, I assume that all homeless people did not work. Um, and what it turns out that they were working is what's called day labor. So that's where Gerald and I was going. And day labor essentially would contract these men, uh, their work out to construction, landscaping, tourism and hospitality companies for 13 to $15 an hour U.S. And then they would pay back $7.25, which was minimum wage in the state of South Carolina, where I'm from. And after working that with them for a couple weeks, I felt like it was pretty exploitative. Um, so the day so the day labor kind of, uh, I guess, temporary work agency or whatever you'd call it in the UK uh, organization, they're, they're contracting out these people at 13 or 14 pounds, 13 or 14 dollars an hour. But the person themselves is only getting paid American minimum wage, which is like seven. Right. So they're kind of taking about half. And it's the basic industry of staffing. So you can staff attorneys or doctors or whatever you want. But when you get to the bottom rungs and you're dealing with the least of these, it can be pretty exploitative. Um, So it made me angry enough that I decided to start a company where if our employees come to work, do a good job, and they're drug-free, we would pay them more. We increase wages by about 30%. um, And we would also provide them with coaching and then help them get permanent jobs. Nice. So that started as a nonprofit in 2011, and then we actually opened up a for-profit arm of it in 2014, and we employed up to about 170 people on a daily basis. Wow! Yeah, and just in terms of the the people in that situation, so either with IAS or in some of the the other agencies, the other day labor agencies, so. How stable is that work? So is the thing that you've kind of seen on TV in the past and stuff is this thing of people rocking up to a street corner at 7am or whatever and certain people get picked and certain people don't get picked. Is it that unstable or are there people who work in the same places on day labour for a long time and they have more of a kind of stable setup with what they're doing? It's a little bit of both. You know, ours is organised, so it's not like on the street corner, it's through a specific company because especially like larger construction projects, like they want to make sure that taxes and workers' compensation yeah. is there. Um, the issue is that, yeah, you, it is day-by-day work. Once you prove yourself to be a good employee, somebody may keep you longer. But the problem is is that even at that pay wage, like where I'm from, I don't think you can live for less than $15 an hour. So like we would get our employees to a little over 9 but the problem is is that you're living on such thin margins that if you don't calculate your weekly gas exactly right, if your babysitter shows up late, if your mom gets sick, if all these things happen, like, you suddenly have nothing to fall back on. <clears throat> yeah, well, something you, breaks and you, yeah, it needs mending. Or yeah, your yeah. car, and then yeah. you miss a day of work, and then you're out of work. Yeah. Um, and it's this really vicious cycle. Um, I think that people in the U.S. are are largely unaware of how far behind a large percentage of our population is. And for me, it was really hard because we were making a difference, but that difference felt like we were taking people who were drowning 10 feet beneath the surface of the water and pulling them up to 7 feet Mm. beneath the surface of the water. And that is making a difference. It is an improvement. But if you're still drowning, like, you know, it's a really hard thing um, to deal with. And you've been kind of out of that business now for a couple of years in a, in a similar way to what I've done with Think Productive in that, you know, I've, the business is kind of still going and operates and stuff and I do work on, in the margins and around that, but I'm not kind of in the main business. So, uh, where, so where is IES based, first of all? So that's in... Beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we're here in Brighton. It's uh, so a great place. <laughs> <laughs> that's been that's been our little running joke over the last couple of days. Is uh, Derek uh, telling me you've got a great place here? Brighton's really cool, uh, and uh, constant reminders, which is nice. For it's people nice in hear. Charleston, it's kind of it's kind of like Charleston a little bit. A lot okay. of a lot of nice like uh, beautiful pastel colors on the homes and things like yep. that. So. I'm going to crank up the tourism here. <laughs> um, so you're obviously geographically quite far away. And then in terms of headspace, how far are you out of that business? What's your relationship with IES right now? So we've got a really great team that runs it on a day-to-day basis. And in that sense, I'm completely out. And then in the sense, as you know, of trying to thoughtfully and purposefully uh, take what I've learned and then put that into 
the next meaningful step in life. You know, it's at the forefront of my mind all the time. Yeah. Um, that might be a good segue onto the book. Uh, just before we talk about the book, so um, in terms of that separation and um, and kind of relationship, like it, it, it feels to me like quite a weird thing. And it's one of those ones that people don't talk about so much is, you know, people talk a lot about kind of founder syndrome and stuff, but the whole thing of having having an organization and it's something that was your vision and now you've got other people taking that thing forward but there's still a little bit of a you know, like for me we think productive there, there are occasions where people want to know what I think about something even though it's not my job anymore right so someone will come back to me and say hey what do you think about this thing with a logo or this thing with a you know branding or like so, something like that because it kind of feels like okay here's here's someone who was responsible for that initial vision and it may, might not be their job now but it still feels like it's worth asking that person or whatever so do you have that kind of relationship too where people are still consulting you for what they should do next um pretty rarely pretty rarely yeah okay <laughs> yeah back in yeah. september i helped out for um oh probably 20 hours a week in in a project that i was kind of the expert in for a couple weeks but yeah. otherwise um I just tell them that they're doing a phenomenal job, which they are. <laughs> but uh, but I think and continue what, on your travels. <laughs> yeah, what you what you said sparked though something. I was listening to um, Reed Hoffman's podcast. Things called Masters of Scale, and in it, he was just talking about the difference between entrepreneurs who kind of like go. It's sort of seen as like a sexy thing to go from like one really different thing to the next. Hmm. But then he talked about Ev Williams, who's the founder of Twitter, and then. Ev also started like in blogging and really his obsession was kind of the use of language as a way to communicate. And so I really feel like I'm kind of like that. It's like I've done a couple things, but like I've got this sort of obsession and I'm trying to chase that tiger down a little bit. So like, that's why I can say like IES is um, completely out of my mind because it's being ran by others but at the same time like I'm very deeply trying to figure out what's that like nugget of truth that that I care about that I want to pick up and run with if and that makes sense so the obvious next question is how far have you got with that thinking and what's <laughs> a, had, if you had to define the nugget now because the nugget becomes if you're going to say if you're going to set up three or four more businesses over the next 20 or 30 years then that nugget becomes almost like the path or the the map around, you know, how those businesses congregate together or what's the, you know, the, there'd be common themes amongst those businesses based on what that nugget of your purpose is, right? So how far have you got with that? Uh, not very far <laughs> <laughs> in some ways. Um, <laughs> or are you going to say something? I'm, well, I, I might challenge you on that and dis- disagree with you slightly and say I, th- I feel like you think about it a lot and you you have a fairly clear sense of purpose I think yeah I think I know the things that I'm supposed to do I just need people like you to push me out and do them so I think that I'm kind of deeply motivated uh, by my faith but I'm also motivated by which I believe is true but I'm also motivated by just the sincere goodness that the idea of uh, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, if people live that out, that it can add value to the world, um, and people can look at that and determine if they believe it or not, but just those principles. Um, so I think that like this sense of purpose really flowed through the decision to live in the mission, start IES, and I think now... Uh, I'm somewhat obsessed with the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Like, what does that mean? And I think that you can't love the neighbor that you can't see, touch, feel, etc. And I think a better question to ask then, um, would I be willing to have somebody over to dinner that's a different color than me? Would I be willing to live next to someone who's a different color than me? Is Do you have someone over to dinner who's a different color than you? And do you live next to someone who uh, is a different color than you. And if not, um, then I think that we've got some blind spots that make it completely unrealistic to say that we're loving our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah. Um, um, so 
let me do a bit of a cultural qualification on that last bit. So yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of English people will listen to this and say, huh, why is he talking about <laughs> people of different colours and, and whatever? And I remember you explaining to me once how in South Carolina it's not... So you don't have the kind of multicultural melting pot thing so much in South Carolina as you'd have in, say, New York or in most of the UK where you'd have people of mixed ethnic origin kind of living next door to each other. It's kind of like there are black areas and there are white areas, pretty much. Yeah, and, and just to further give an explanation, I would say that any time a group of humans is fragmented from the rest of society, whether it is uh, people who are elderly or whether it is people with intellectual disabilities or whether it's socioeconomic status or education or anything else, uh, you lose a piece of that meaningful uh, piece of society that only that group of people can reveal to us. So, you know, I've, I've put this trip together to, to learn more about people who are different from me and um, and this idea of co-living, which maybe we can talk about. But, you know, it's from, I spent some time living in an intergenerational co-living community about a month or six weeks ago. And there they have people who are elderly living with people who are students. And the students just talk about how much they've learned about patients um, the founder of this organization actually spoke at the University of Michigan, which has a, uh, a a lot of young Americans have problems with suicides. And she said, if you bring elderly people into communities with the young, like those elderly people will show people what is worthwhile about life. It's the small things. So that's just one example. And then, you know, the, I stayed with a group of people with intellectual disabilities and they taught me how much I spend my whole life orchestrating around my resume and achievements. And when you have someone with an intellectual disability that loves you unconditionally, regardless of what you've done or you haven't done, it shows you how much you're warped and your focus on offering, like, I'm smart, I'm funny, I have a great job, I have a good education. And, uh, and it puts a different light on these things. Hmm. So my argument would be, like, far beyond race. That's, that's, that's low-hanging fruit in the United States. But um, but when it comes to all these other different sectors, the way that people think differently, have different belief systems, anytime you fragment a group of those people and put them away from the rest of society, you start to miss out. And and I would say that every beating heart is our neighbor. Yeah. So when that when that group of people isn't around, we all lose. And so does that make sense? I'm getting on yeah, a roll totally, now. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think maybe this is a good chance to talk about the book. But the thing that's sort of in my head, which maybe you can talk about the book, um, and also, but also in this sort of context, is obviously your background and faith is American... Would you just call it mainstream Christianity? Because like, there's like different parts of... There's like Baptist Christianity and, it, and The Catholic. problem, I would say, is that it's absolutely not mainstream Christianity. <laughs> okay, right. But you have quite an interesting thing going on with your faith, which is that I often... I've sort of described you to other, other people and kind of... I think I've said this to you before, is that you often bring up in me that um, sort of cheesy phrase of what would Jesus do? And it's like, what would Derek do? You know, he lives among the homeless <laughs> and he goes to the refugee camps and all this kind of amazing stuff but also you kind of have a real cynicism about organized religion and the church as an institution as well right so that for me feels like a difficulty for you because you know what you're describing there is all this stuff that you feel like needs to change in society and you kind of see your faith as a way to make that change but also the people who are selling that faith are people who don't necessarily want to jump on their bandwagon yeah I mean I think that um, I think that the main problem with this is me I think that I know the things that should be said and need to be done but it's really kind of a lack of courage um, yeah but you can't do it all I guess is where I was coming from with that it's like you want to see societal change as well as make societal change right yeah yeah and I would say that what is somewhat confusing about my situation is that I have much less um, appreciation for institutional Christianity. And what I mean by that really is just like the buildings and the places where people go on Sunday. But I very firmly believe in 
the body of Christ, which is like the people who believe in, in Jesus, like they're supposed to be living out this sort of radical um, form of love that's found there. And many of those people still go to those churches. And so I have a very strong belief in the body of Christ and I want to see it be what it can be. But I think that to a large degree, the institutions of Christianities uh, in the United States are, are getting in the way of that body of Christ. Yeah. And so I see my friends who like don't even go to church who are exhibiting a lot of this fruit um, who really care, like yourself, even though <laughs> even though you would not call yourself a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, I suppose agnostic. But uh, I think that because there's such um, lack of authenticity within institutional Christianity that it's it's getting out of the box. Hmm if that makes sense for sure so it mm. felt like when we were talking about the book um, you had a couple of strands going on so one felt like it felt to me when we were chatting a lot on, on Skype about the book that there was definitely a strand of your thinking there that was about sort of questioning questioning your own beliefs and kind of where that fitted with organized religion and Christianity and, and everything else um, and I suppose the other part of it that was very strong was just this whole notion around purpose and meaning so maybe that's just a good uh, very open way to um, talk about the book so I'll just say tell, tell us about the book <laughs> all right uh, so it's 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 the best book that you'll ever read other than productivity ninja <laughs> uh, is the first thing I would say about it and then it basically makes the case that we all want success in life, uh, but too often the success that we are taught leads us to self-absorption, isolation, and stress. And the success that I think we really want is a life of purpose, which leads to helping others, a community of love, and having a guide. And so I essentially take stories and interactions of the people that I met and just plot those things against each other. Um, so the last one the last story that I told about Gerald with this grill, like that's a story about community. Uh, too often the success that we're taught in life actually leads to isolation. Um, and when you look at American society right now, it's, it's our number one health risk. It's more dangerous than obesity and heavy drinking. And I think that when you look at our society where homes have doubled in size over the last 50 years, um, you know, we need like long-term care insurance and car insurance and all these things. You could say it's more prosperous but I would say that it reflects a society that people trust each other less and less and less. And so they have to extend their borders. They have to have more resources in order to um, in order to protect themselves. But I don't think that that's what leads to a fulfilling life in the same way that, that this life of purpose does that Gerald exhibited mm. um, that's clearly based around community. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the book, it's really challenging this idea of success. And for my... Um, friends who are Christians, they would call it uh, this this idea of success, this false idea that we call it an idol. Mm. Uh, it's something that gets between God's purpose for our lives and the way that we're supposed to be living. And so that very standardized formula for success, individualism, money, bigger house, bigger car, all that kind of stuff is very much at the heart of what you're railing against really with the book. And in a way that's kind of in opposition to the story with Gerald, which is about community and trust and interacting with, with each other on a, on a kind of much more empathetic level. Yeah, and it's important to note that the author of this book struggles with success, mm. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I, I have my own contradictions and I am too weak to act out the things that I say I believe in, um, whether it's just how certain things are going in my life, whether it's the book or the business or future plans, but also just yesterday, like we were talking about this catch 22, right. Of like social media and things like that on Instagram, where it's like, yeah, yeah. you put out your best image of yourself to the world. And yet, uh, there's a part of you that feels that it's fake. I heard a guy, he, um, I just met him and he, he wrote a book called the boy crisis or something. And he was saying that oftentimes men, he was talking about the male elk, um, who will grow these huge antlers in order to attract a mate. But then as soon as the elk mates, he has to scrub off his antlers and eat as much as possible to avoid starving and dying during the winter. Okay. And his point was that oftentimes, like, 
our external facade of strength is really reflective of a great internal weakness. Mm. Um, and so I think that that, that pull and pressure and contradiction exists in all of us. But, but if you read the book, you'll be able to walk out of it perfectly with just a life of purpose. Yeah. <laughs> well, hang on. I want to pick you up on that thing of, um, you know, you as the author struggles with this stuff as well. So we were talking yesterday a lot about social media and just questioning that whole assumption that you need social media to make your business successful. And, uh, you know, and it kind of, it kind of started because we were, you were taking photos by the pier and you wanted to take my photo by the pier. And I just got all kind of just like, I just thought this is ridiculous and kind of got a bit shy about it and stuff. Can I tell them why? I can't tell them why, why I was taking your photo. You could go on. Why are you, you taking my photo? Well, you can remember. edit it out, right? For your for your for your dating profile. Oh yeah, so this was kind of linked to the same thing. Is like I have such bad photos on Tinder and Bumble is because I just like don't I don't enjoy having my photo taken yeah. whatsoever. So all my photos are about eight years old, and would just happen to be taken by someone else. And it's like so I have no control over that. But yeah, so we were talking about this whole thing of of um, people on social media. I, I think there's like a move that particularly. I think it's a particularly a women thing, but women move their leg in a certain whoa, way. Whoa, 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 The pose is, that's a female okay. thing, isn't it? Maybe. With the leg. Yeah, I don't know. I don't so the leg is like a little <laughs> bit crossed, and it's like this kind of I'm a model kind of thing, but everyone's just pretending to be a model now, even though they're just normal humans. Yeah. Right? And we're just in this kind of weird thing. So we were talking about that yesterday. Uh, and I've just lost my train of thought now. Where, where are we going with that? Well, we were talking about the external facade of strength is revealing oh, yeah, of yeah. an internal weakness. Yeah. And you were talking about yesterday how sad it is that people have to find their value in. Yeah, in so we got on. Yeah, we got onto quite a big thing about you. I remember and you said, I said, why are people posting these kind of photos anyway? And you just really casually just said for validation because you get <laughs> likes you know and it's like oh it's really sad that it's kind of come to this so the elk has this huge strong facade and then on the inside and I do think anybody listening to this if you look through your stream of people on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you'll I, you know I know some of the who, who some of those people are in my life who have this <laughs> very strong facade on the surface and then actually inside they're really really struggling or really you know like just just not they don't have the level of strength that the pictures uh suggest short proselytizing commercial if jesus had an instagram nobody would follow him because he had an external facade of weakness and internally he was quite strong people were constantly disappointed at what just a non-powerful guy he was really? yeah it's quite good looking though isn't he Maybe in the maybe in the after photos, I don't know. I dated a girl in high school. I dated a. Oh, I can't say when, cause, but uh, she saw one of the movies that Jesus was in, and she was like, "Is it okay if I think Jesus is really hot?" <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to edit that out. Uh, I generally don't edit any of this out. <laughs> okay, so, well, let's keep digging a hole. Yeah. Then. <laughs> so let's come back to the thing that you were saying about. By the way, the author of this book doesn't have his own his own life in order and struggles with these things too and whatever so what are your main struggles and particularly around you were talking before about struggling with success and struggling with notions of success well i think that you know this is my enneagram too uh i'm a four which is a romantic which i'm not an enneagram expert but they have the the courage to stand out from society and yet they constantly have the desire to fit in so mm. i think that lots of the things that i'm calling for uh, practically require that I stand out and that people stand out and yet internally I want to fit in so just a, a great example is um, on the one hand I feel like I know a business I need to start on the other hand I want to get an MBA to get a nice steady job Yeah, and that will lead me to um what I see is kind of just a, an easier life. <laughs> it may, it's probably not any easier. It's not. I'm not judging that it's easier or harder. I'm just saying like that's oh, that's the idea easier. in my head. Ha- having oh, a, it is easier. Okay, having well. a stable job is easier than being an entrepreneur. Okay, well then, see. <laughs> so now you're validating all my all my fears. But uh, what I was going to come on to is you. So you said to me the other day that one of the reasons you want to be on an MBA program is for the sort of the validation of 
having a having a top school stamp your thing and say, "Hey, this is Derek," and whatever. So, what what's that about? Well, I guess it's the same thing as the Instagram likes, right? I mean, we all seek out validation in different ways, and some mm. of us do it through education, and some do it through Instagram, and some do it through their bank accounts, and some do it through their humor or who they hang out with. Uh, some do it through the neighborhood they live in. Brighton's a great place, by the way. But you, <laughs> <laughs> but you also said to me that you think. So you you were saying something about how. A lot of MBA programs will get one or two people who have quirky stories and use those people all the time to sell sell the MBA community as this, you know, radical group of interesting people. But actually, most of them are very conformist and most of them are very straight down the line. And there's only really one or two people that are those kind of more outlier people. So you were kind of criticizing it, but at the same time, you want in on the validation. Gosh, wow. I feel naked, Graham. <laughs> Yeah, that's the struggle, is it not? Uh, but I think that... Um, so this is a good point, too. Like, I, I read a great book uh, called Divided by Faith, and it talked about how people, not only who are Christian, but also who um, are the most educated, if you give them a survey and say, going back to that fragmentation example, are you willing to live next to someone who's a different color? Um, they will be the ones who are most likely to say, yes, I am. But then in reality, they're actually the least likely. And the deal is not that they do not care about those things. It's just that they are more focused on exercising economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I think you can see that those kinds of conundrums in all of us. It's like, I care about this life of purpose. I care about doing these things. But at the same time, I'm, I'm a fish in a swimming pool that's full of this like false idea of success. And so I'm constantly trying to sober up and see the world for what it is and then act on that. I've been thinking to myself lately, it's like every morning I wake up like a crazy person and I've got to and I've got to kind of like reel it all in and put and put the proper lens of, of what the world's really like back on. If that makes sense. Expand on that. So you wake you wake up like a crazy person and then you've got well, to because I'll wake up with all these I mean maybe you don't have this problem, probably none of your listeners do, but like um <laughs> You know, I wake up with all these worries, right? And like, how am I going to fit in? What am I going to achieve? Am I going to be the best today? Like, am I going to figure out that job or career or whatever? Do you have that every day? I, yeah, to some, to some degree. I mean, it may, the, the feeling I may, I may be sort of like extrapolating what I think that feeling actually means, but yeah, I mean, it's like anxiety or fear or whatever, like in some form or format, I feel that every day. Um, and then I have to put on the realities of just the things that I was telling you about, like someone with an intellectual disability looking at me and saying, I love you just cause you're human. Like mm. doesn't matter where you went to school. doesn't matter that you started a business or wrote a book. Like you bring inherent value to the world. Um, so writing a book called the definition of success is, is a lot of that about trying to remind yourself that there's a wider definition to success. Yeah, I think everything I do, I'm trying to scratch my own itch and then convince mm. other people to come along with. Yeah. So you have just come back from a bit of time in Greece. Um, yeah. Tell us about what you're doing there and another very interesting experience of going all in, living in a place that really needed you. Well, I wasn't living in that one. Um, yeah, so I put this trip together and I stayed because I'm interested in this idea of co-living, which is, by the way, multiple family units under the same household. Um, and I think that it can be a healthier, cheaper and happier way to live. So I told you about the intergenerational community, the community for people with intellectual disabilities, where they live with people who don't have the intellectual disabilities. Um, and then I went to one in Frankfurt, Germany, and then a refugee camp is just a really intense form of co-living. Um, and I think that what was miraculous about it was that you had more than 6,000 people living on a Greek military base for 1,000 people. And it's basically the size of two football fields. And these people were living together in relative peace. They were from over 40 different nationalities, um, many of whom are natural enemies. There's a ton of tension, a ton of pain and suffering. And yet you could see these very basic human elements of joy, community, 
people know each other, they're laughing, they're playing, they're having fun, and they're sharing tents, and all that they need to get along is basically a divider between the tent. Yeah. Um, so just paint the picture of that a little bit more, because I imagine that is a, a, a side of life, an area of life that most people listening to this would have had no experience of. I certainly have never been to a refugee camp, so... You know, just like how big are the tents, and you know what's the kind of setup there, and just just paint paint a bit more of the picture of that. Well, so the camp is on a square basically, um, and there's a little bit of a grid that runs through it, which is great because it it allows people to see the same folks over and over and create relationships. Um, the tents themselves, I mean, um, it's going to be hard to describe to your listeners. Um, maybe like ten by. 20 feet okay you'll have to do the metric conversion yeah. for, for the, in feet too right so, yeah so, the average person is six foot so you don't have much room oh and you have like 12 or 16 in, people yeah and a tent that that that's that size so i mean you know 200 divided by 10 would be 20 square feet a person and it's it's more than that so and sleeping on sleeping bags or in small beds or like what's the uh, just everything. I mean, yeah. cots, sleeping bags. Um, I mean, the the innovation. The innovation was so incredible. Like you had entrepreneurs opening up their own little coffee shops outside of Moria. You had like a disco ball and like a little food truck, and wow. um, you had all kinds of amazing things going yeah. on. And then at the same time, just severe pain and struggle and loss, um, and. You know, I just, I'm about to publish this blog post. Uh, here's three reasons why it's easier to find God in a refugee camp than a church. And it mm. just kind of talks about these same things of like uh, self abandonment. So the idea of mammon is not, it's not these individual choices we make. It's oftentimes the choices that we're born into of like living fragmented from other people. But continuing to do that is still a choice. And so in Moria, uh, you can see community thriving on a very delicate balance of a place mm. that you only have water for four hours a day like resources are very scarce um and yet somehow day after day like the sun rises and it continues to come together um and these and, are people who are largely rejected by both the place they've come from and the places that they're trying to go to you know yeah and what's the time span around you know how long people are staying there are most people there you know for sort of months at a time yeah, it's important to point out I'm not an expert. I was only there for two weeks, but um, and and I'm really highly considering going back. But what I heard when I was there is that people who were showing up on boats from Turkey, which you can see from the camp yeah. across the water, um, their appointments are like 18 months out or wow. longer at this point, just for their first appointment to find out if they can gain asylum. So that's quite a long stay. Wow, um, you know, and the people are brilliant, and they're competent, and they're smart. You've got some troublemakers for sure, but it's like I had just gotten rejected to a graduate program in England, and then while I was there, I met a Iraqi woman who had got accepted to three um, hmm. in January. Right. But she's a refugee and has no idea when she couldn't possibly go, and I could apply again if I wanted to. Um, and so you know. We just have different ends of the stick, yeah. but we're the same. She wants the same things that I do. Yeah. So. And you did the night shift there. I did the night shift. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, you got to watch out for Alibaba. <laughs> 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 Alibaba is is what is what everybody would say if something was being stolen. So uh, the refugees are also like quite clever. It's a very very small group, but nighttime is like when they will try to basically steal resources mm, so the first right. day that i got there somebody had taken one third of the nonprofit that i was working with their soap and they had buried it into the ground Shit. and they caught them because they were selling it on the black market <laughs> and the camp but uh but yeah I, I i spent a lot of that time guarding section c which was the area for vulnerable women who mm. didn't have any men with them um and you know, like you were talking about women earlier, it was this day and age um, where there's some very, very good, helpful conversations going on. It wasn't until I was actually explicitly protecting women 
that I felt that in these past couple years with all these conversations going on, I had felt like that that was less of my role. Um, mm. And so being in a role of being able to explicitly protect women from predators from the outside uh, from the hours of 11 p.m. to 9 a.m. was actually a really cool experience. And they gave me tea and stuff like that. So. <laughs> you got free tea. That's good. Yeah. Um, and let's talk a bit more about this co-living thing. So I'm a big fan of efficiency in general. And one of the things I've... One of those like weird thought experiment daydream things that I've had for a long time is like, why do we all have our own oven and we all have our own refrigerator and we all have our own microwave and all these, all these different things? And it's like, why, what if you just had kind of like one living room for every sort of six or seven families or like one big washing machine that you know like I I just feel like there's ways of pooling resources that would just be way more efficient environmentally than everybody having their own set little part of the world so is that is that part of what interests you about the idea of co-living yeah I think are you talking about environmentally or yeah so for me there's a there's a very big environmental aspect to that there's also just a sort of headspace thing to it as well which is that i i'm really bad at diy so i i feel like if there was i feel like i could make a better contribution to a household if the household needed more than just diy and things like that doing so in the sense that if there was a bunch of do people it, who do it yourself, right? Americans yeah, d- yeah, like you know, why. putting the putting shelves up yeah, on the yeah, wall yeah, and, and and doing all that very practical stuff. I'm just no good at it, but I can think and I can write, and this I have skills. So I'm kind of thinking if if there was a setup where I could contribute, um, you know, coaching someone with their CV or writing the job application for them, whatever, and then in return they could contribute some of those more like practical skills that I just don't have right like it just opens it up doesn't it to be able to being able to kind of share and pool resources and skills and to be able to do to play to your strengths rather than having to be good at everything which is what you kind of have to do when you own a home right like you have to be responsible for all of this stuff hooks on walls and just things that like I just don't know how to how to fix half the time right yeah so it's a headspace thing as well as an environmental thing. And obviously there's a much bigger uh, deal with it with the community aspect for you. But I'm just wondering if that's kind of part of your mindset as well as that whole kind of efficiency thing. Yeah, I'm writing it all down because you're giving me more good sales tactics here. Hmm. Um, I think the environmental thing goes into loving your neighbor as yourself because that's important to the world at large. But ultimately, uh, it affects humans too. So... Um, to me, co-living is a healthier, cheaper, happier way to live. It's healthier because we were talking about the isolation factor earlier. So when you live with people, uh, you're going to curb that problem. It's cheaper because affordable housing is such a huge American issue and maybe a Western issue as well. Um, I have, I know lots of people who don't like the jobs that they work, but they feel stuck in those jobs in order to pay the expenses that they've accumulated in housing is usually the greatest portion of that. Mm. Um, and then it's happier because when you live with people who are different than you, you're more likely to see the world from a broader lens. And even if those differences are really small. So I'm a huge fan of it for all those reasons. And then the ones that you've added are great. I was actually thinking when I was co-living in Brooklyn, the times that I would come home with like a crazy thought in my head that was like negative about myself but because I had somebody else there, I could just voice it to that person, and then they would tell me how silly I was, and it would stop it right there. But if I lived alone, hmm. I would just continue to dwell on that all night. Um, no, it, tell me about it. Yes, yeah, so I think that co-living can be a really powerful way to live, and it's not for everyone, um, but it is for a lot of people in seasons. And I think that the way that American society set up is set up is such that um, housing is an investment. It's a sign of sort of prestige and status when you're an owner. Mm. Um, and I think that those are not necessarily true. Yeah. So so I think that um, this can be a great way to introduce some of the elements that we've been talking about, this life of purpose and the success that we really want. Um, and I don't have a problem with home ownership necessarily. I have a problem with how American society has used it to fragment human groups one from another. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in co-living, if you go to DerekSnook.net, 
there is a little tab called CoLife. It's a very minimal MVP, but if you just fill it out, I'll actually get your information and then I'll probably reach out to you with questions. And you're thinking about that being the next business or the next thing you're going to spend a lot of time on? I'm thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, kind of like a platform where people can connect. Uh, It would be like Airbnb, but it would be longer stays and it would be more local and then it would kind of formalize the way that people find others to live with now, which is through Craigslist and Facebook. It would standardize it so you're more likely to be on the same page about whether or not it's okay to have cats or overnight guests or whatever, provide some credibility through common connections and insurance, um, and then also just kind of educate people on why co-living is a good thing. And I think when you think about the spirit of Airbnb and what that's done, I think that has very much... I mean, I think it's moved away from it a bit in that you've got all these people that buy up properties and have chains of Airbnb places and all the rest of it. But the original spirit of that, that you go, you go and stay in someone's home, you know, and I have Airbnb people stay like right here in my house as well. The original spirit of that, I think, is just it's so much nicer just being in someone's house. Like literally tomorrow I'm on a plane to Toronto and I'm staying in an apartment with somebody who's going to be in the other bedroom or whatever. But like it's a really nice... For me, it's a really nice thing to do that rather than just stay in some soulless hotel all the time. So it kind of brings that, it brings all that, all those things to light, and it does all that other stuff like the whether you should have cats and whether there's going to be pets there and all that kind of thing. But I do think if you think about how that has enabled people to see when you're traveling, you get to see a bit of what the culture is like in terms of living, not just what the tourist attractions look like. You know, I think this could do a similar thing around that bringing people together and kind of understanding different people and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's crucial that the that the space is tenant or owner occupied so that you're actually engaging with the human and you're not going into a space where it's just going to be you. Um, yeah. And one thing we haven't really talked about before we finish is productivity. Okay. So what's your relationship with productivity? What, what, the, what are your... Um, sort of rules of thumb about how you set your time up to be productive I'll give you a I'll give you a philosophy first and then what I actually do second so actually they they go together I'd say that with productivity for me the longest way around can be the shortest way home Um, that's a C.S. Lewis quote Hmm. and you know I was just talking to my business partner and close friend yesterday And he was talking about how, you know, process, he was talking about a process in his own life of kind of healing and how, you know, he felt like it took 15 months to heal from it. But the low point, the hardest point was actually 12 to 13 months in. And so it can feel like from a productivity or progress standpoint, you're not making progress and strides when in reality you are. And so I think as an encouragement, probably to a lot of people's lives, um, is that success, right? And resumes lead us to believe in like this sort of linear progression and like if you if you stray from it you're 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 screwed (laughs) for lack Mm, of a better word yeah but i think that productivity in life is actually much cloudier and grayer than that um and so that should be an encouragement that the longest way around is the shortest way home uh the way that plays out in my life right now um every morning i wake up like you've kind of seen me do it a little bit I, i sort of hide parts but i have like a two or three hour just routine in the morning where i do you know like some really basic exercising and then uh for me because of my faith it's really important that i spend some time um like reading the bible and then also kind of this liturgy book that i use and then i'll take a part of a course on a coursera uh course that's like right now i'm doing corporate finance and then i'll read uh, that's part of your morning routine every morning yeah, and then I'll read. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, this whole business school thing has got me wanting to learn. So, uh, and then I'll read like ten to twenty pages in a book. Mm. Um, right now, I'm reading Henry Ford's biography. I'll journal for five to ten minutes, and then I will set goals for the day, and then I will look at my iPhone. But I oftentimes cheat. So the iPhone comes first, and look, all that stuff. Look at look yeah. at the iPhone prior, but I try not to. <laughs> So that's kind of like my morning routine. And by then, since I get up at 8... <laughs> by then, it's like 3 in the afternoon. It's like... No, I, get up, I can get up earlier. I've been thrown off my routine because I've been yeah. traveling. But, you know, but at, at that point, I try to focus on whatever the most important goal is for the day. Sure. And when you were in the midst of... 
but can I can I the reason why it's yeah. those things that's what's most important to me in life like exercising to some degree spiritual health uh, like learning being in touch with my emotions through journaling like mm. those are the things that 30 years from now I want to have made incredible progress on yeah. and so I feel like I have to prioritize that and put that at the beginning of the day so when you were in the midst of running IES right were you, do, were you still doing that routine or were you kind of on the treadmill you know on, on the hamster wheel kind of running at 100 miles an hour to stand still and just not having time for those things like was that something that you've always made that habit around no so I was on the treadmill then and when I started focusing on writing the book at the beginning of 2017 I started experimenting with this mm. and have just been doing it since then because I I saw the deterioration of my health um, through a lot of just I mean I was working 60 70 hours a week and yeah. so I wanted to try to take my life back and going back to the community thing too it's like I, I have friends one of my friends in New York was just talking about how she found it hard to have meaningful relationships and I was just like and I think the reality is is that we always will if we work 60 hours a week like that's our longest time commitment it's yeah. really hard to have strong community yeah. but everyone takes it as a given that they're going to be working a lot and there's an interesting thing that you were just saying a minute ago about, well, the reason I do all those things as my morning routine is that's what I, that's what's important in my life. Those are my priorities, is learning and your spiritual health and, and those things. So I suppose relationships and community or family or friends or whatever those things are, if you also think of those things as important, then they have to fit in somewhere. So having a 60-hour-a-week job is going to crowd them out and take up too much of the room. So where they fit, it doesn't. you don't have to make time for friendships first thing in the morning necessarily but there has to be space I'll start calling you at 6.30 yeah. in the morning <laughs> <laughs> hey Graham sure, I'm sure you have before but, uh, but there has to be space right so you have so anyone listening to this who is already working you know crazy hours and is feeling like they're struggling with friendships or relationships or family or something it's like well those two things are pretty well linked and maybe also we're told in society that you almost like you become successful and that's how you get validation and that's how you get more friendships or you increase your uh, sort of status within your family or whatever, right? Like you you bring home the, the paycheck for the family and all that sort of thing. So like we're kind of almost told that striving for success and working too many hours will help us with all those things. But in reality, it does the opposite. So actually, Henry Ford was just saying that someone who works a job that they do not enjoy is missing the best part of their wage, something like that. Mm. And I just think that we've got this idea that it's just a given. I think I heard that 70% of Americans don't like the jobs that they're in. Yeah, the um, British stats are pretty similar. Yeah. And so, like, on the one hand, I, and this this to me is where this life of purpose actually comes in. On the one hand, you know, I, I worked a job that with incredible people doing carriage tours it was not the perfect job for me, but it got me, it was perfect for getting me to where I wanted to go with being able to start IES. I worked it to have money to pay my bills while I was starting the company. I'm not saying like that at all, ex all extremes, like you only do the thing you love, but I am saying that I think too many of us have accepted that to fit in into this systematic society, like it's okay for us to spend our lives kind of toiling away at something that isn't using our gifts to best love society and our neighbors. And I think that you're definitely going to uh, miss out on life and your relationships are going to be strained anyways, if you're doing something that you hate. Um, I also heard Dr. Ruth, she's like a sex therapist in the United States. She said, if you want to have great sex when you're older to do something that you love. So if that doesn't seal the deal, I don't know. What's that what going to do with when you're older? I don't get that bit. Uh, I heard her in a workshop where it was like uh, something like sex for couples over 60 or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if you're over 60, it's more important to be doing what you love. I think it's important all the time, but she but she, she, she was like, if I can give you one piece of advice, if you want to have great sex over the age of 60, do something that you love. Okay. Cool. It's like the number one thing. I'm sure that's uh, useful advice for some of our uh, 
all the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be quitting their jobs yeah. tomorrow. Uh, and probably quite a good uh, place to finish. But before we do, let's just give people the rundown of where they can find more about you and what you do and maybe connect with you online. And we've had a couple of conversations about uh, your quitting of social media over the last few days as well. So I, yeah. I won't say where, where where's everyone going to find you on social media because that kind of sets you up for a fail. But... Where can people connect with you? Yeah, catch me if you can. Um, so DerekSnook.net is the best place. And my name is D-E-R-E-K. My parents gave me the shortest spelling of Derek because they were worried I wouldn't be able to spell my name very well. So they <laughs> tried to make it simple. So D-E-R-E-K-S-N-O-O-K.net. Cool. You can get the book there. You can read some blogs there. Cool. Thanks for hanging out. We're going to go and check out Brighton Festival. It's a great place. <laughs> it's a great place. Check out some jazz. And Derek, thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Thanks for having me, Graham. So thanks again to Derek for being on the show. Thanks also, as always, to Mark Stedman, my producer from Bloomsbury Digital, and to Think Productive for sponsoring the podcast. We will not be back in two weeks' time. We're going to take a little break while I'm in book mode. I'm just back from my my baseball trip in Canada and the States. And over the next few weeks, my job is really to get heads down into the book and meet my deadlines at the end of June. So I'm going to be uh, heads down and away from Beyond Busy for a few weeks. So we're going to take a little break at the, the end of this series. And we will be back in a few weeks' time with a new series. So as we get further into the summer, you'll be hearing more from Beyond Busy. So it's a little little enforced break while I go off and do the book. So while I'm away, just to say, have a really great few weeks. Really enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy the sunshine. And I'll see you in a few weeks' time. Until then, take care. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.